We are continuing in our series, which I've called O Perfect Redemption. It's a study on the doctrine of the atonement, and especially on the controversial doctrine of the extent of the atonement. And in this series, I've been seeking to prove to you from Scripture that the extent of Christ's atonement is limited to the elect alone, that Jesus Christ has died to save no more and no fewer than his Father has chosen in eternity past and has given to him as his sheep. And each time I preach a sermon in this series, I feel a strong burden to reiterate that the point of this series has not been to celebrate the fact that there are people for whom Christ did not die. Uh, The point is not to emphasize the exclusion of some from the saving will of God, though some are excluded from the saving will of God. No, the point has been to safeguard the atonement from being robbed of what makes it precious and sweet to us sinners who need a perfect redemption to stake all our hope and all our confidence on. See, there are ways of thinking about the cross that unintentionally, maybe even subconsciously, fundamentally alter the character of what the cross is. And those ways of thinking are so popular. Well, Jesus died for everybody. Christ atoned for the sins of the whole world. And you say, oh, well then why isn't everybody saved? Does that mean that the whole world will escape punishment for their sins and go to heaven? And the response comes back, oh, oh no, no, I'm not, I'm not a universalist. Jesus himself says that people go to eternal destruction. Okay, so then Jesus' death doesn't save people, is what you're saying. And they say, well, he died to make it possible for everyone to be saved. He died to provide salvation to everyone, but those who don't believe in him forfeit that gift. Okay, so Jesus died to make it possible for sinners to be saved, not to save sinners. And sinners' unbelief overrules his intent to save them. Is that what you're saying? And inevitably you get, uh, right? It sounds good. It sounds magnanimous. It sounds even loving to say Jesus died to save everyone. But when you tease out the implications of a universal atonement, you recognize that if you universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation, you empty the cross of its saving power. You make something other than Christ's death the decisive and determinative cause of salvation. And that is not good news for sinners. But when you proclaim the Bible's teaching that though Jesus does not die for every single individual without exception, nevertheless, every single one that he does die for is by that very death infallibly assured to be saved from sin and brought home to heaven, well, then you begin to taste the sweetness of the doctrine of particular redemption. When you recognize that the atonement does not need faith added to it to give it its saving power, 
but that the atonement of itself is so savingly powerful that it purchases the very faith that unites us to Christ and the blessings of salvation in Him, well, then you feel the strength of the cross. Then you can rest your whole soul on the cross. Then you can see the glory of a perfect redemption. And so that's been my burden in this series, to protect the power and the glory and the sweetness of the cross from the unlikely enemy of a universal atonement which undermines all of those things. And to do that, I've focused on making a positive case for particular redemption, examining the whole Bible's framework of the doctrine of the atonement. I've criticized the methodology of rushing too quickly to passages on the extent of the atonement and just volleying back and forth those passages that say Christ died for all with those passages that say Christ died for many. The antidote to that is to step back and place that debate within the context of the whole Bible's framework for what the atonement is and what the atonement was designed to accomplish. And as we've looked to Scripture for instruction on the design and nature of the atonement, we have found that particular redemption maintains the unity of the Trinity in salvation. That particularism fits most coherently with an atonement designed to save sinners rather than merely to provide salvation or make salvation possible. That particularism upholds the Bible's teaching on the nature of the atonement as an efficacious saving accomplishment rather than a potentially inefficacious provision. That particular redemption best, best explains the atonement as a work of Christ's high priestly ministry, which is explicitly, unmistakably particularistic. And given all those truths, that particular redemption fits best with the inherently particular biblical metaphors for the atonement. And we saw those last week, how Scripture says that Jesus died for His people, for the many, for His sheep, for the children of God, for His friends, for the church, and for God's elect, all of which are particularizing designations. And we saw how the, the emphasis, not exclusion objection failed at every turn. The argument that, well, just because he died for the sheep doesn't mean he didn't also die for the goats. We saw how that doesn't hold water because those particularizing designations are necessarily exclusive. In John 10, when Jesus says he died for his sheep, he explicitly excludes the Pharisees whom he names as not his sheep. In Romans 8, when Paul makes the death of Christ for the elect the ground of their assurance for salvation, well, it has to be that that death of itself is determinative of salvation. Otherwise, those Christians could say, well, Paul, what difference does it make if Jesus died for me if he also died for those separated from him forever in hell? The difference isn't in Christ's death for me. The difference is in what I do in response to it, isn't it? And my response to it is what I'm wondering about because my life isn't what I'd like it to be. And so how can I really know? Undoes Paul's entire argument. And then in Ephesians 5, we saw how Christ is no polygamist. That when Paul says Christ died for the church and gave himself up for her as his bride... 
that that metaphor is inherently exclusive. Christ's love for his wife must necessarily be of a distinct and special character, precisely because the marital union is distinct and special from all other relationships. Now, those positive biblical arguments are sufficient to make the case for particular redemption. I think we could stop there and say this teaching that Christ died for the elect, of, elect alone, unpopular and as, un, as counterintuitive as it may be, is the teaching of Scripture. And so we are bound to believe it and confess it as the truth. However, it simply cannot be ignored that Scripture also casts the scope of Christ's death in universalistic terms. Not only friends and church and many, but 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 John 2.2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so any legitimate defense of particular redemption must explain how this universalistic language doesn't contradict particularism. And besides that, the entire case for a universal atonement rests upon interpreting these sorts of universalistic passages to refer to all without exception. And that means that if it can be shown that when terms like all and world are interpreted in their contexts, that they do not refer to absolutely all people without exception, if that can be proven, well, then the case for universal atonement is shown to be groundless. At that point, all the positive argumentation for particular redemption that we've worked through together would be vindicated against its most weighty objection. And that is what we intend to do this morning. We're going to look at several universalistic texts and, that are often offered in support of a universal atonement. And my aim will be, will be to interpret them in their contexts and to demonstrate how not one of them teaches a universal atonement. None of them contradict the doctrine of particular redemption. And in fact, we'll see how they all complement and in even some cases positively reinforce the case for particular redemption. Now, I could spend an entire sermon on each one of the texts that I'm going to cover here this morning. And so we're not going to say everything that can be said about each of them. Uh, I'll also have to leave a few of them out. But I do want to mention that earlier in our series... I treated 1 John 2.2 in our sermon on propitiation, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, and Colossians 1.20 we did in the sermon on reconciliation, and 2 Peter 2.1 I addressed in the sermon on redemption. And so I'm going to skip those this morning and refer you back to those sermons for our examination of those key passages. Now another caveat before I begin. I know that many will be tempted to hear this sermon as me trying to explain away several Bible passages, and I plead with you not to hear it that way. What I'm saying today has to be taken along with what I've said in the past 10 or 11 messages prior, and what I'm trying to do is bring all of Scripture's teaching on the design and nature of the atonement to bear on these individual passages that, at first blush, seem to contradict that teaching. 
But of course, because Scripture is inerrant, right, because it is ultimately authored by the single divine mind, there can be no contradictions. And so I'm aiming to show how passages that sound contradictory only sound that way because we're reading them superficially rather than in context and according to the intent of the author. So with that caveat, let's get to it. But before we get to our first text, I need to make an observation, and that is this. The word all is not self-interpreting. I don't think anything sabotages the fruitfulness of discussing the extent of the atonement more than the unwarranted assumption that the plain or natural meaning of the term all is all without exception. Everyone who ever lived, everyone who ever lived in history, anyone who's alive on the earth at this time, it is all too common in this discussion to hear assertions, well, all means all, and that's all all means. (laughs) But of course, that kind of assertion assumes what needs to be proven, because Scripture often uses the term all to mean something other than all people without exception. In fact, all is much more often used to mean all without distinction, all kinds, all of some sorts, some of all sorts. And there are several instances in Scripture where the term all cannot mean all without exception. For example, in Genesis 6.13, God says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. But, of course, it wasn't the case that every living thing, without exception, perished in the flood. Noah and his family, as well as the animals on the ark, survived the flood by God's gracious design. All flesh, evidently, does not refer to absolutely all without exception. In Acts 2, 17, Peter quotes God's prophecy to Joel where God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And literally the term is upon all flesh. But again, such a universalistic expression is limited by the context. God will in fact not send his Holy Spirit to indwell or give gifts to all people without exception. Here, all mankind refers to the people of Christ from all nations, Rather than from Israel alone, they're, they're, in Pentecost, they're, they're in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The gift of tongues comes upon all of them. Each man hears him speaking in, in his own language, right? But there are multiple different languages. And he quotes Joel to say, see, it's all mankind. That is, not Israel alone. But not all mankind without exception. Because not all mankind without exception is going to be indwelt by the Spirit of God or given gifts by the Spirit of God. Another example is Romans 5.18. Paul says, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Through one act of righteousness, there there resulted justification of life to all men. But I ask you, are all men without exception justified? No, we know from other passages like Matthew 7, 13, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. In context, Romans 5, 18 means that just as Adam brought condemnation to all who were united to him, 
so also Christ will bring justification to all who are united to him. But all without exception are not united to Christ. The point is he will justify everyone who is in him. And how do you get in him? You get in him by faith. And where do you get faith from? You get faith as the gift of God. My personal favorite is Romans 14.2, where Paul is discussing Christian liberty and food choices, and he says, one person has faith that he may eat all things. Now, obviously, the sense here is limited to those things which are edible, right? Paul isn't speaking of someone having faith to eat iron nails or steel pipes. And so it's plain that all doesn't always mean all without exception, by default. Which means that all is not self-interpreting. Like anything else, universal language must be properly interpreted according to its context and consistently with the rest of scriptural teaching. There are times when all does mean all without exception, and yet those are in the significant minority. Much more often, though, The sense of all in Scripture is all without distinction, all kinds. That is not forcing your theology to override the plain sense of a text. It is the plain sense of a text over and against a superficial reading of a text. So now let's get to the text themselves. And we'll spend more time on some than on others. But we'll start with number one, John 12 and verse 32. John 12... And verse 32, there Jesus declares, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, which speaks of his crucifixion and his atoning death, as the very next verse tells us, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, proponents of universal atonement teach that the phrase all men refers to all without exception. They say that this drawing refers to a universal wooing. It invites everyone to believe in Christ, but it's ultimately ineffectual because God must respect the creature's free will. But Scripture never speaks of such an ineffectual universal drawing. The only drawing that Almighty God does is the effectual calling of regeneration. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not, they might because I'm wooing them, but they could reject me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And in fact, if you look up the term draw in John 12, 32, as as well as in other passages in in the Gospel of John. It's the word, the verb helco. And if you look that up in the rest of Scripture, it refers to things like when Paul gets dragged out of the city and when a soldier draws his sword from his sheath. It doesn't refer to an ineffectual wooing. It refers to dragging a, a, a prisoner outside of the city. And so a lot of times people say it says draw, it doesn't say drag. Well, actually, that's actually what it does say. Now, besides that, though, the context of John 12, 32 favors interpreting all men as all men without distinction rather than all men without exception. A few verses earlier in verses 20 and 21, 
John reports, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So in response to some Greeks asking to see him, Jesus explains that he's got to die, verses 22 to 28, and then he declares that by his death he will draw all men to himself. By which he means not only his Jewish countrymen, but even Gentiles like those who were asking to see him. All men in this text means all kinds of people, all kinds of men, both Jews and Gentiles. It does not mean all people without exception. The only ones drawn to Christ are those who were eventually saved by Christ, namely the elect alone. And so we see both grammatically, lexically, what the word means, and contextually, we have reasons to say this is not all without exception, but all without distinction, Jews as well as Gentiles. Second, appeal is often made to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Those who deny a particular redemption claim that the phrase, he died for all, indicates that Christ died for all without exception. But that interpretation is not without significant problems in this passage. Paul immediately follows that statement by saying, therefore, that is, because Christ died for them, therefore all died. Now, don't miss this. Christ's death on behalf of all affects the death of those for whom he died. But in what sense can it be said that all those for whom Christ died have died as a result of his death? Well, we have died with Christ in His death for us, He being the head and we being the body, such that His death to sin counts for us. Colossians 2.20 speaks of believers having died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6.1-3 says that in union to Christ, we have died to sin. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.15, the next verse says that we have died to ourselves and now live for Christ. So the point of the passage is that Christ's death for His people affects their spiritual death to sin and self in union with Him. But can those things be said of all without exception? Have all without exception died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world? Can even those who finally perish in hell say that their life is hidden with Christ in God? No. Only the elect can be said to have died to sin and self in union to Christ. And so only the elect are in view in this verse. More than that, Christ not only died for His people, this passage says, He was also raised on their behalf. Verse 15, if union with Christ in His death 
necessarily effects the spiritual death of those for whom he died, well, it must also be the case that union with Christ in his resurrection necessarily effects their spiritual resurrection as well. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 6, 5. He says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there is no such thing as union with Christ in his death without union with Christ in his resurrection. But unless hell is empty, you can't say that all people without exception have died to themselves, have been raised to newness of life, and now live for Christ. No, what's happening here is that Paul is using the language of corporate solidarity, that the one died for the many, to emphasize the union between Christ and his people. He has died for them, and they have died to sin and self in him so that they now live for his honor and glory. The one for all motif doesn't indicate absolute universality. It, it indicates corporate solidarity between the one and the many whom he died for. It's telling us that the actions of a single one affect the all whom he represents. A third text often marshaled in support of a universal atonement is 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6. 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, which speaks of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. If God desires all people to be saved, and if Christ has given himself as a ransom for all, how can we deny a universal atonement? Well, again, this passage must be read in its context. What was going on when Paul wrote 1 Timothy? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 3. Certain persons were teaching, end of the verse, strange doctrines. Verse 6 says, they were turning from sound doctrine to fruitless discussion. Verse 7 says that these false teachers had ambitions to be teachers of the law. Now, when you combine that phrase, teachers of the law, with their speculation regarding endless genealogies, verse 4, and their forbidding of marriage along with certain foods, which we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that their false doctrine consisted of an exclusive Jewish elitism. These were teachers like the Judaizers who were insisting that the only real Christians were those who observed the Mosaic ceremonies. And so they had a, a strange fixation on endless genealogies and wanted to be teachers of the law and forbidding certain practices like legalists do. Well, against that backdrop, Paul makes universalistic statements throughout the letter, including this passage in chapter 2, and that makes perfect sense. Paul isn't teaching that Christ died for all without exception. He's teaching that contrary to this false teaching, Christ died for all people without distinction, for Gentiles as well as Jews. Now, 
That's not something that a bunch of Calvinists cooked up in their Calvinist bunker. Even I, Howard Marshall, who held to an unlimited atonement, wrote this about 1 Timothy. He says, this universalistic thrust is most probably a corrective response to an exclusive elitist understanding of salvation connected with the false teaching. The context shows that the inclusion of Gentiles alongside Jews in salvation is the primary issue here. So in other words, by speaking of Christ as giving himself as a ransom for all, Paul does not intend to say that Christ has stood in the place of and received the punishment due to the sins of every individual who has ever lived throughout history. Rather, he intends to say that the benefits of Christ's sin-bearing substitutionary atonement are not restricted to an elitist sect but are enjoyed by all kinds of people throughout the entire world. Now, that conclusion is only strengthened by the fact that in 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul urges prayers to be made, quote, on behalf of all men. Pray for every single individual. No, he cannot, that phrase cannot mean that he wants the believers in Ephesus to pray for every single individual who has ever lived without exception. Not only would that require a lot of time, it would also require virtual omniscience. I couldn't even pray for every single member of Grace Church without a membership roster, let alone for every individual on the planet, and still less for every person in history. No, Paul's exhorting the church to pray for all kinds of people, even as he immediately follows that request in verse 2 by defining all men. He, he says, on behalf of all men, comma, that is, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, he's saying just because your prayers may seem to be wasted on unlikely converts, such as the rulers who persecute the church, don't let that deter you. Pray for all kinds of people without distinction, even kings and those in authority. Let no class of person be excluded from your prayers. And so just as the all of verse 1 ought to be interpreted as all without distinction, all kinds of people. So also the alls of verses 3, 4, and 6 ought to be interpreted in the same way, given the same context. Christ atoned for all kinds of people, people from different social classes, like rulers versus common people, and people from different ethnicities, Jews versus Gentiles, and so on. The same consideration is warranted for Paul's statement on our fourth text, Titus 2 and verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But the phrase all men is necessarily defined by the immediately preceding list of different classes of people. Look at Titus 2.2. 2. It speaks there of older men. Verse 3, of older women. Verse 4, young women. Verse 6, young men. And verse 9, bond slaves. So since not all men without exception are actually saved, 
It is best to interpret all men in this passage as all kinds of men, that is, people in every station of life as enumerated in the previous verses. A fifth passage brings us back to 1 Timothy, one that has been the subject of much discussion, and that is 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10, where Paul describes God as the Savior of all men, especially of believers. God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And proponents of a universal atonement teach that this text says that Jesus is the Savior of all people in the sense that He provided for the salvation of all of them in His universal atonement. But that He is especially the Savior of believers because the benefits of salvation are applied only to believers. But there are a number of problems with this interpretation. First, it assumes that the Savior in view here is specifically Christ the Son. But the nearest antecedent of Savior is the living God. The living God, which is a title that Scripture employs to speak of the Father rather than the Son. We see that in a couple of instances in which the Son is distinguished from the living God. Like in Matthew 16, 16, where uh, it says, where Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And besides that, there, there is no place in Scripture where the living God refers unambiguously to the Son. Now, obviously, the Son is perfectly equal to the Father. I don't mean to suggest that the Son is not the living God. It's just that when Scripture uses that title, it seems to restrict it to the Father in distinction from the Son. So the living God, who is the Savior of all men in this passage, likely refers to the Father rather than the Son. And when you add that there is no mention of atonement or the cross in the context of 1 Timothy 4, the case becomes a bit stronger. So, at the very least, assuming that Christ and or the atonement is in view in 1 Timothy 4.10 is saying more than is self-evident. Second, the, the universal interpretation reads the concept of potentiality or provision into this text where it simply is not. Nothing in 1 Timothy 4.10 explicitly or implicitly signals that we should see a distinction between a potential provision and an actual application. That has to be read into that text in order to explain how Christ can be the Savior of all men when all men are not actually saved. It's a notion brought to the text, not read out of it. Third, as a result of that, it reduces the atonement to a potentiality or a possibility rather than an efficacious accomplishment. The move from a definite accomplishment to a provision or a making possible is a fundamental change in the nature of the atonement. And as we've seen, it's one that's not warranted by Scripture, and one that, if taken to its logical conclusion, undermines the gospel. And then, fourth, very related to that, there is a significant problem with saying that God is the Savior of men who are, in fact, never saved. It's really toying with language to speak of someone as the Savior of people whom he desires to save, he gives the opportunity to eventually be saved, but whom he does not in fact save. The death of Christ is held out as a universal provision that makes salvation possible for all without exception on the condition that they believe. 
But in the case of the overwhelming majority of those whose salvation has been provided, God in His providence never sends a word either of the gospel by which they must believe uh, to be saved or of the Savior in whom they must trust to be saved. If Christ has died for every single person in history who's ever lived, you think about how, you know, how restricted the word of salvation was up until the explosion of the modern missionary movement. So you're talking 1,700 years after Christ as well as you know, 3,500, 4,000 years before him where there are millions of people being born and dying, never ever hearing about the Messiah or Christ or the gospel. So what does it mean to provide salvation to people upon the fulfillment of a condition when the one who must act for them to fulfill that condition refuses to do so? And then on that basis to be called their savior. I'll provide salvation if you fulfill this condition, but I'm never going to meet the minimum requirements for you to even begin to have the opportunity to hear and make that decision. But I'm still your savior. I don't think so. John Owen says one of the best lines in his uh, Death of Death and the Death of Christ is this. A savior of men not saved is strange. A savior of men not saved is strange. It's gratuitous to call God the savior of those who are not actually saved. It stretches language to its breaking point. Say, okay, fine, but what's the alternative? Well, in the first place, given what we said about God the Father being the living God, the Savior spoken of in this text, and and also given that there is no explicit mention of the atonement in the near context, I would argue that it's reasonable to interpret the term Savior in the only other sense in which the Father is a Savior. Namely, that by His providential care, He is the rescuer and preserver of life for all creatures. And in fact, that's, uh, those are two perfectly normal glosses for the term soter that get translated savior to refer to spiritual salvation. They also, it also, in plenty of other contexts, speaks of a rescuer or a deliverer or a preserver. And there are many texts which speak of God's goodness to all of his creatures. He gives life to all things, 1 Timothy 6, 13, Acts 17, 25. Psalm 145.9 says, He is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Matthew 5.45 says, He brings sun and rain on the evil and the good. And then, of course, though all people without exception have sinned against God, God has not immediately visited His justice on them like He did with the fallen angels. Even the non-elect enjoy a temporary stay of execution, and thus they experience the joys of life in a world infused with the common grace of God. Unbelievers who deserve nothing but hell now, just like we deserve, they get to have food that doesn't taste like sand. They get to breathe in the pleasant aroma of fresh flowers. They get to enjoy the blessings of family and society and company. They don't deserve any of that. And the point is, in the uncertainties of life, even those whom God has not chosen to save are spared from countless natural calamities. You think about would, especially on the 5 and the 405, you you think about would-be car accidents, 
You think about plane crashes, not, not on the five, but, well, you know, maybe. You think about violent attacks and robberies, which we hear reports of every day, or 10,000 other disasters that are averted by the providence of God, even upon His enemies. Many times without people even knowing they were in danger. How many car accidents did God prevent from swiping you right off the freeway and you didn't even realize it because they were behind you? See, God is a kind God to his people as well as those who are his enemies. And in that sense, he is the savior, the rescuer, the preserver of the lives of all men. Say, okay, fine, but in what way is God the savior, especially of believers? Well, in this sense, that with believers, he not only rescues us from temporal dangers like he does for all other people, but that he extends that rescue and deliverance all the way into eternity by blessing us with spiritual salvation from sin. Again, the entry for Savior in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament puts it this way. God is, quote, the benefactor and preserver of all men in this life and of believers in the life to come. And then Homer Kent uh, has a, a commentary on the pastoral epistles, and he takes this view as, and says, as applied to unbelievers, God being their savior includes preservation and deliverance from various evils and the bestowal of many blessings during this life. To believers, however, this salvation does not end with earthly life, but goes on for all eternity. And some people respond and they say, no, no, I don't like that because it makes Savior mean two different things at one time. You got Savior for the unbelievers, meaning providential preserver, and then you got Savior for believers, meaning eternal Savior. But the context does give us reason to see physical life alongside eternal life in verse 10. Look at verses 7 and 8 of 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. But discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there's a reference to worldliness on the one hand, godliness on the other. Bodily discipline on the one hand, godliness again on the other. And then there is mention of what's profitable for the present life on the one hand and what's profitable for the life to come on the other. Those are strong contextual foundations for expecting a comment on how God saves men in both a temporal sense on the one hand, all men, and in an eternal sense on the other, especially for believers. So this is Paul's point. Not that Christ has potentially atoned for the sins of all men by dying for all of them, but that the Father, whose beneficence manifests itself to all people, even his enemies, in his providential preservation and care for them through temporal dangers, is the same Father whose beneficence extends to his chosen people, even into eternity, in their spiritual salvation from sin. All right, we'll address a sixth passage, and that's 2 Peter 3, 9. And though this text doesn't explicitly speak of the atonement at all, proponents of a universal atonement argue that it reveals a universal saving will in God that contradicts a particular redemption. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Since God wants none to perish, but all to repent, well, these folks argue that God must have sent Christ to die for them all. But it simply does not follow that since God, in some sense, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as he says in Ezekiel chapters 18 and 33, it does not follow from that that Christ has atoned for all without exception. There's much to be said as to why 2 Peter 3.9 doesn't support a universal atonement, but I don't have time to give you every reason. The most decisive reason comes from considering the recipients of Peter's letter and the immediate context of this particular passage. In this very verse, Peter addresses those whom he's speaking to. He says who he's talking to. He writes that the Lord, look at it, is patient toward you. Okay, well, who are the you? Look at the previous verse, verse 8. He calls them the beloved, a term used of fellow believers in Christ. Or we could go back to the, first, the beginning of the letter, the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter addresses the epistle to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking to the people of God. The you in 2 Peter 3, 9 are the people of God scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1, and 2. And then 2 Peter 3, 1 says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So we know it's the same letter for both. These are the chosen according to the foreknowledge. These are the elect that are the you. What's that mean for our verse? Peter is saying that the Lord Jesus delays his return because he is patient toward those who are his, those whom the Father has given him and for whom he has died to save, but who have not yet come to faith. This passage isn't saying that God desires the repentance of all people without exception, those very people to whom he refuses to grant the gift of repentance. No, it's saying that God desires the repentance of all those He has given to the Son, for whom the Son has died to save, and who therefore must come to faith before God judges the earth and casts unbelievers into eternal punishment. What would God, God's patience towards the church, how would that be manifested in desiring everybody to come to faith who will not actually come to faith because God will not grant them faith? How is that patience toward the church? It's only patient towards you if those who he's not wishing would perish are the same you, the people of God, those elect, who have some of whom who've come to faith and some of whom have not. All right. Well, you might notice that all of the texts we've addressed so far have the term all in them. We also hear much, though, about those passages of Scripture that use the term world. Because world is such a seemingly expansive term, many argue that to say Christ takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29, or the, the atonement is the result of the love of God for the world, John three sixteen, or that he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2, is to say that Christ has paid for the sins of all people without exception who have ever lived in the world. But just like with the, term all, with the term all, world is not self-interpreting either. Just as all can mean all without distinction and not necessarily refer to all people without exception, 
so also world is used in numerous different senses. In fact, there are at least seven different ways world is used in the writings of the Apostle John alone. And just like all, there are several passages in in which world simply cannot mean every person who has ever lived in the world or even every person alive in the world at the time of writing. For example, John 1.10 says, speaking of Jesus, the world did not know him. But of course, some in the world did come to know Jesus. Even just two verses later, John says, well, as many has received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In John 8, 26, Jesus says, These things which I have heard from him, the Father, these I speak to the world. But Jesus did not speak to all people alive in the world. This signifies that he spoke openly to those in Israel without distinction. I'm speaking to everybody, but not every single individual. You know what he means. In John 15, 18 and 19, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, Because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So here, the world is distinct from the people of Christ and therefore is not inclusive of them, which means it is not an absolutely universal designation. And we can keep going. The the point is, naked appeals to the so-called plain meaning of world being all without exception simply does not satisfy the demands of faithful biblical exegesis. Just like anything else, world needs to be interpreted in its context. Now, I mentioned that, you know, one of the most significant world passages in this debate is 1 John 2, 2, but we, we addressed that passage at length in our sermon on propitiation, which I preached on March 20th. If you'd like to hear more about 1 John 2, 2, go ahead and find that message from March 20th. And if time permitted, I could probably comment on three or four others, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to do one more, our seventh text for this morning, and that is John 3.16. I'm sure all of you know it very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Proponents of a universal atonement claim that by giving his only son over to a substitutionary death for sinners, God has expressed his love for the entire world, which they believe refers to every individual who will have ever lived on the earth. But I say to you that nothing in the passage demands that world be interpreted to mean every person who has ever lived in the world, without exception. In fact, there's good reason to understand it as people throughout the world without distinction. In the first place, I want you to consider the nature of the love spoken here. God's love, signified by the Greek term agapao, does not consist in mere fond affection or a powerless wish to see the beloved benefited, which is what I'm convinced most people hear when they read John 3.16. Ooh, God just loves you so much. His soul just delights in you because of how precious you are to him. He can't bear to be in heaven without you. And so he sent his beloved son for you. You could put me on TBN, couldn't you? Right? That's what you hear all the time. But that's not this word. Divine love consists in the determinative act of God's will to purpose to accomplish 
the benefit of his beloved. I'm going to say that again. Divine love consists in the determinative act of God's will to purpose to accomplish the benefit of his beloved. And that means it is an unmistakable mark of divine love that its intended aim or determined purpose be brought to fruition. Almighty God is not a frustrated lover. His love is always efficacious. It always secures its desired end. Well, if that's true, what then is the benefit that God intends to accomplish by loving the world in this way? Well, the text says that the intended effect of His love is that all who believe in the Son, pas ha pistuon eis auton, everyone believing in Him would not die in their sins, but rather be saved unto everlasting life. The intended benefit that God purposes to accomplish by His love of the world in John 3.16 is nothing other than salvation itself. And given that the divine love must accomplish its purpose, we're constrained to conclude that none are objects of this divine love except those who finally receive its intended purposed benefit of salvation. And again, who are they? Who, who does the text say that they are? Look at it. All the believing ones or everyone believing in him, whoever believes in him, and who are the ones who will, who will believe eventually? Well, only those to whom God grants the sovereign gift of saving faith. And whom does he grant that gift to? To the elect alone. Now, like I said, many believe that world here refers to the whole of humanity, elect and reprobate alike. But I continue to struggle with how it can be an act of, of the love of God to the reprobate to send Christ into the world to bring eternal life to all the believing ones. You follow me? How can it be an act of the love of God to the reprobate to send Christ into the world to bring eternal life to all of the believing ones? The reprobate, by definition, are those who will never believe. More than that, they're those to whom God has chosen never to grant the gift of saving faith. Because in his inscrutable wisdom, he has chosen not to save them. We read in Romans 9.22 that they are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. And in 1 Peter 2.8 that they were appointed to doom. Jude 4 says they were long ago pre-written unto condemnation. And so we must ask, how can it be an act of love to those who will never believe to send Christ to accomplish the salvation of only those who will believe. That would be to say, God so loved all in such a way that only some of them will enjoy the benefits of his love. But given that divine love always secures its design, those who fail to receive salvation cannot be said to be so loved, to be loved in this way. I don't deny that God loves all of his creatures. I said before, his mercies are over all of his works. 
There's the love of beneficence in which God does good to all. There's the love of benevolence in which God wishes good in some sense upon all. But the love of complacency in which God's being takes delight in its object, that's restricted to his people alone because he's made them delightful. He's made them lovable. More than that, though, it's not only that God never grants faith to these he supposedly loves by making them savable through faith. It's that he's so ordered the circumstances of providence that vast numbers of those whom he said to love by sending Christ to save believers never hear a word of the gospel of Christ. I mentioned this before, but it's worth saying it again. John Owen writes this, Strange that the Lord should so love men as to give his only begotten son for them and yet not once by any means signify this love to them as to innumerable he does not. Saying, yeah, the people who hear the gospel have that signified to them. But there are a lot of people who, who never hear the gospel. And the, the, you know, God is sovereign over who hears the gospel. Owen continues, that he should love them and yet order things so in his wise dispensation that this love should be altogether in vain and fruitless. Love them and yet determine that they shall receive no good by his love, although his love indeed be a willing of the greatest good to them. In other words, what love is it to those who not only never believe the gospel, but who by the providential ordering of God never even hear of the gospel, nor even of the Christ whose coming is supposedly designed to be a signal of God's eminent love for them. In my judgment, that introduces an incongruity that cannot be solved. And so that the proper referent of the term world is elect in John 3.16 is elect throughout the world. And if that's so, why does Jesus say that? Why doesn't he just say then God's people throughout the world or the elect throughout the world? Why does he use the universalistic terminology? Well, the answer is in the context. As Jesus is speaking of God's salvation of sinners, he's talking with Nicodemus, whom verse 1 calls a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. The Pharisees, like virtually all of Israel in Jesus' day, regarded Gentiles as unclean and alienated from the covenant promises of God. And as Jesus discusses salvation with this ruler of the Jews, he explains that God's love terminates not only upon Israel, which would have scandalized them at the moment, but his saving love also terminates upon men and women throughout the entire world, Gentiles as well as Jews who believe in Jesus. World here isn't meant to signify all persons without exception. It's meant to signify all peoples without distinction. And so at the end of the day, when the so-called universalistic texts are interpreted in their context, and when they're interpreted consistently with the rest of Scripture's teaching concerning the nature and the design and even the extent of the atonement, no text genuinely teaches that Christ has died to atone for the sins of all without exception. And without that, there are no exegetical or theological grounds for seeing a universal extent of the atonement. And that happens to fit perfectly with all of those positive arguments for particular redemption that we've worked through in our previous sermons on the matter. Okay, but if that's so, how can we consistently preach the gospel to all people without exception? I mean, you hear me do it week by week, even throughout this series, 
But how can I do that consistently? How can we believe in a strictly particular redemption on the one hand and yet a genuinely universal free offer of the gospel to all people without exception on the other? That will be the subject of our next sermon. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your word is pure, like silver refined in a furnace seven times, that there are no contradictions or errors in it. And even what seem to be, you know, different, differing emphases on first blush or on the surface, that when we patiently submit ourselves to the text, rather than seeking to stand in judgment over the text, we find how all reconciles into one glorious coherent whole. And we behold the beauty of divine wisdom as the great author of it all. So many authors, so many time periods, different continents that the scripture is authored on over 1,500 years, and yet one single divine mind governing and superintending it all so that everything that these men said, you meant to say. And we are here now to to discern your intent by what you said. What a glorious employ we have been engaged in to search out the divine mind by a clear and consistent and inerrant scripture. And what a, what a thrill it is to think that we could know what you intended for us to know from all eternity, from having your servants write thousands of years ago. Here we can smack the rock of the word of God and living water can gush forth from it. And we know that ultimately that rock is the, is the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. You, the eternal word, Lord Jesus, are the one who has brought us the written word. And we are, so, we are so grateful for not only being saved by you, but then being indwelt by the spirit who illumines to us the things freely given to us by God. May we treasure the word. May we never dishonor it by saying it says something that it does not say. May we never sit in judgment over it. May we all always resolve to submit our will to what is in its pages. And Lord, I do pray that though you, you do clearly reveal the extent of the cross to be limited to your elect, I pray that you would pursue those of your, yours uh, who are elect this morning and yet who have not come to faith. I pray that you would grant that those precious sheep that Jesus died to save, but who have not yet come into the fold, would come into the fold this very moment that they would acknowledge their sin before a holy God, that they would confess that they deserve nothing but eternal punishment, that they would look upon Christ who has made a perfect redemption, who has canceled all of the sin against every one of his people, and that they would look to him and find in him a sufficient savior, someone who meets the very need that they have that is greater than every need in all the world, and that is to be reconciled to a God of holy justice. And that they would... You would grant them that, those gifts of repentance and faith, that they would turn from their sins and look upon Christ in perfect trust and confidence that all that he has accomplished is sufficient to avail for them before the bar of your, your holy justice and that looking upon him lived for righteousness, dead for sins, risen for justification, that they would find their forgiveness and righteousness in him alone. All unto your glory Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory by saving sinners through the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. 
Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.